today's New Testament reading is found in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. That's uh, page 1,123 in your pew Bibles. <clears throat> but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special, special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who, who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Our second New Testament reading this morning is found on page 1047 of, of your pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along. Romans 12, verses 6 through 13. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. It's been several weeks since I talked to you directly. The last two weeks we've had the privilege of hearing from my homiletic students from La Sierra University each give homilies, six of them in all. A very rich time, and I appreciate your feedback and welcome any further feedback you have to give me regarding those homilies and students, a wonderful time in worship. Before we took that break to hear these students speak, we were talking about organizing our lives around stories that had meaning. And I had done some theological work with you, fairly heavy work, which I can't apologize for, though I admit it was dense at times, must have been demanding on your ears. But we started with the idea of the story of God and humanity, the story of Christ set within the story of God and humanity, and the spirit and sought to image each of them as they've chosen to image themselves, remembering that God has declared no graven images are to be made, in no way is he to be mimicked or copied, and yet he himself imaged himself in creation, male and female, and in Christ, who Hebrews says is the exact representation of the Father, though we have no earthly physical descriptions of the likeness of Christ or God, only a apocalyptic-type visions, prophetic visions of them in the heavenly realms. Jesus is imaged, obviously, not in form or word, but imaged, uh, excuse me, not in form or in uh, idol, icon, but he is imaged in word. The word that creates and makes and the word that promises and sends. The spirit is imaged in dove, in tongue, in 
wind breath. And it was that image of the tongue that we left off exploring. For when we read of what happens in Acts chapter 1 and 2, when we read of Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit on those in the upper room in power, our traditional image is that of a flame that alights on each person. But the text, the deeper reading, the meaning of the words in the Greek draw us not to flame, but to tongues that have been cloven or pulled apart and come to rest on each of the individuals. And it is out of these tongues that take the appearance of fire or flame that messages proclaim, proclaimed and the church is born. You see, as the apostles are preaching there in Acts mightily in languages now that they do not speak and do not know, and as Jews gathered from all corners of the earth listen and hear in their own native tongue now the message of Jesus Christ, the text records for us that thousands are added to the church daily. The birth of the church has happened The logical step today would be to speak of the church and the ways in which it is imaged, its iterations, the purpose and point of all of that. But I'm going to get into that a little more specifically through today's message. Out of Acts, we have the rise of the church, the presence of the Spirit, the proclamation of good news. And immediately following it, we have something stunning that takes place. We have a new economy born. We read in Acts chapter 2 that the believers met and prayed and had everything in common. The church was unified. The church had all of its needs provided for because those who had means brought them. As the text was just read in Romans 12, those who had gifts, natural and of the Spirit, brought them. So if it was giving, they gave. If it was teaching, they taught. If it was some other spiritual act of worship, discerning, speaking in tongues, interpreting tongues, whatever the gift, the church had it. And all were satisfied, and God added to the church daily. The passage in 1 Peter that was just read last, 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, points us to an interesting direction in terms of ecclesiology, that is to say, the doctrine of gathering, the doctrine of being God's people on earth, the doctrine of being the church, the doctrine of what was born in Pentecost, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And you are these things not because of your worth, not because of who you are or what you've done, not because of the sins that have been committed or forgiven or the graces that you have channeled from God to others. But all of this so that you may declare, here comes proclamation, kerygma, message, the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The church is born. The church is thriving. The church has a new purpose, identity, mission, and place. And what are we doing with it? What is our relationship to this thing God has brought and wrought? What is our valuation of what is formed of spirit? What does it mean when we declare the story of God who creates by word, who sends by word, whose word sent was with him in creation and redemption and speaks to us the reconciling words of grace and the love of God when we were estranged from him. What does it mean when this one who goes back to the Father from which he was sent and from whom he came sends his spirit, the new advocate, the new comforter, the one hovering over the waters in creation, seeding the earth, as it were, with the abundance of who God is and the love that is the act of creation. What do we do with this story of a people mourning a Christ who's been crucified, wondering what it means, gathered in prayer, lifting up one another, sharing in this time of loss, and experiencing a presence and a power and an empowerment like never before. What does it mean? What does it mean when the gift of tongue comes and word is proclaimed in such a way that God adds to those who believe and embodies his church? You see, an embodiment and an image of Christ on this earth is the church of whom he's the head. I know it's a lot. It's a lot theologically. It's a lot conceptually. It's so interwoven and connected. And it's your heritage. It's your grace. It's your gift. It's the embodiment of your salvation. The church is entrusted with a gospel with a proclamation, with a word, with a charisma, with a truth. The church lives out the new economy of grace in God's world. The church stands separate and distinct from anything before it or anything that will follow it. It is neither triumphant nor broken. It is both. It is neither representative fully of who Christ is, nor is there any other entity on earth which can better image the Christ who came. And out of this new economy of grace, my question today is the question of stewardship. Oh no, not the tithing program, 
you can put away the envelope in front of you. It isn't about whether you're going to give one, two, three, four percent or a double tithe to church budget. We're not going to get into whether you should be doing one or two percent to world missions or not. The personal giving plan is not my sales pitch today. My question to you is, is this story of God set in humanity, humanity a meaningful one? And if it's a meaningful one, is it still a relevant one? And if it's a relevant one, is it one worth organizing your life around? And if it's one worth organizing your life around, what are you going to do with this gift, this thing God has given you? I'm a little angry. Can I be that honest? I hesitate because people feel that anger or that judgment. Pastors shouldn't be that way, or so they think. They haven't read the prophets or the judges very carefully. They haven't seen Jesus clearing out the temple court. They haven't watched Peter's eyes flash. I wonder about a people who can get to work at 8 o'clock every morning of the week, but cannot get here by 11 o'clock on Sabbath morning, let alone 9.30 I wonder about a people who think nothing of telling me about their condominium in Hawaii and their planned trip for the week, accompanied by the confession that they really can't afford to give much in this economy. I wonder about people who can teach their kids about mathematics and history and grammar, and writing, and English, and supplement that with foreign language classes, and music classes, and dancing classes, and sports. And their children don't know who Daniel or Moses are. I'm a little angry. I'm going to call it righteous indignation because for some of you, anger will never be acceptable. And I think the indignation is righteous. I'm going to ask why on a Sabbath when we have 200 people, our budget nets $700. And we need 3000 a month to keep the doors open. Is this a story worth organizing your life around? Or is it a story that's had its day and seen its time? Are we to be the people that just sort of dissipate and disappear into the mists until God gathers another people? We have a doctrine around our faith around our belief, around our practice. It's controversial because it's so exclusive in the way that some frame it. It doesn't need to be. We say we have been called to be a remnant of God's people on earth, 
a remnant church, a church faithful to the end, faithful to Jesus Christ, faithful to the message that he brings. This is our claim. It's one of our 28. Will we be? Will we endure? Will the new economy of God prevail? Will there be bread in his house? Only you can answer the question. Only you can make the commitment. Only you can decide between you and God and the study of his word if this is still a meaningful story, if it's still a compelling story, if it's still a relevant story, if it's still a story worth organizing your life around, if it's a story that's worth proclaiming. And if the church that has been born by the act of God is worth sustaining. See, you're not just stewards of the dollars that come your way. You're stewards of your very lives. You're stewards of your spouses, your children, and your families. You're stewards of your faith. You are stewards of your community. You are stewards kings and priests, the scripture says, of the church God has brought and wrought. You are stewards of your time. You are stewards of your priorities and what you choose to fill your minds with and your time with. You are stewards of the grace that has been given you and the grace that God is calling you to give to others. Believe it or not, you are stewards of the table from which you are about to eat. Is it still a meaningful story? And so as you answer this question, the question of faithfulness in tithes will answer itself. The question of whether there will be bread in the house of God will answer itself. The question of whether there will be people prepared to give of their time and talent and means will answer itself. I hate to raise a four-letter word in the context of the pulpit and church, but nomcom is coming up. That means nominating committee. We need to form one. We need to make some phone calls. We need to see if the Church of Christ, that is to say the Seventh-day Adventist iteration of that Church of Christ in this portion of Newhall, Santa Clarita, will respond and staff the ministries and create the new opportunities and embody the kerygma, embody the word, embody the message, embody the gospel that this church has been entrusted with. Will we do it? If you're committed to the story, the problem will solve itself. We've been entrusted with another thing that I, I have a, a human understanding of our difficulties with. 
we have been called to be one of the weirdest Christian groups in the Christian faith. And one of the things that makes us weird is that we are among the very few people who take seriously John 13. We are among the very few people who would say we're followers of Christ who when Jesus said, all right, none of you will take the role of servant. Let me show you how it's done. He stripped down to his inner garments and he knelt at the apostles' feet and he didn't wait for them to take up his example. He washed each and every one of them, including Peter, who argued, tried to take control of the situation and tell Jesus how he ought to serve. He washed the feet of doubting Thomas and he washed the feet of Judas who would, within a very few hours, kiss him and betray him for 30 lousy pieces of silver. Is the story still meaningful? Is it still relevant? Is it a story you're going to organize your life around? Now, I know some of you have ugly feet. I know some of you think that your feet smell pretty bad, and I would like to affirm that. I know some of you have corns and bunions and toenails that look like they shouldn't belong anywhere. I know some of you are shy. I know some of you don't like to clean your own kitchen without gloves on and are germaphobic. Come one, come all. The example of Jesus is plain as can be. Do as I do. And so in just a moment, we're going to break. We're going to step out of this space in which you've been challenged to ask what's central to you, and we're going to move to a couple of rooms which are indicated in your bulletin, one where men can serve men, women, women, in all the modesty and appropriateness of that, and a third room where families, couples who would like to share this experience together can do so. We believe in that too. Whether you have accepted the Adventist message or not, if you believe in Jesus Christ, we practice an open communion and you are welcome to be part of this today. This weirdness that we're going to embrace. This weirdness that we're going to claim with pride. For we, one of 20-some denominations that practice foot washing, according to the example of Jesus, out of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of denominations, we're going to humble ourselves. We're going to be the body of Christ. We're going to represent his image and honor his command. And we're going to serve one another. When we come back, you don't need to sit in any particular order. Those deacons, greeters who are in charge with dismissing you will do so by rows. Those on my right, your left, will come to the table. On my right, your left. Those on my left, your right, will come to the table. On my left, your right, to receive the emblems. Please do not eat or drink them at that time, but return to your seat, and I will lead us 
in the traditional readings that accompany the communion, after which we will sing a brief hymn according to Scripture and go home. Brothers and sisters, we're blessed. We have this gift, this grace, and this inheritance. How will you organize your life around it? At this time, please be dismissed to the stations where you will be waited upon and can serve one another to wash one another's feet. Thank you. The strength of Catholicism is the table. The strength of Protestantism is the pulpit. But the Church of Christ is about both. We are about the word proclaimed and the centrality of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, and the meaning that it has for our lives. And we are very much, too, about the communion, that graced place of community in which we're called to share in the grace of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and to affirm our connection and our oneness in table fellowship. So today I welcome you to the table. We will begin our service of communion with the prayers for the body and the blood, the bread and the juice. Please bow with me and reflect upon your own relationship with Jesus Christ in this moment as we dedicate these emblems. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed and grateful that you have chosen to use your own body as the symbol of your gift to us in this moment, and that then you have later described this gathering as the body of Christ. We know that what you intend for this to be is nourishment not only for our bodies, but for our spirits and a renewal of the relationship that we have with you. We thank you for this particular gift and what you have in mind for the transformation of our lives in our partaking of it. Amen. Amen. Mighty Father, we thank you for the love that you have given to us. You chose us before we were, which is to say, I love you. You created a world for us to, to live in and enjoy, which is to say, I love you. You sent your son, Jesus, to, to live on this earth to show us the way, for certainly he is the way, the truth, and the life which is to say, I love you. And Christ gave his life for us, and he shed his blood for us, that we could have eternal life, the salvation that you promised, which is to say, I love you. And so today, we respond, we partake at your table to say we love you. We have asked that deacons dismiss you row by row to come forward. I would suggest that you come down the center aisle, please. 
take the elements at the far side and return to your seats. Um, there is a risk of spillage. If you should lose one entirely, please come back for another. Uh, and don't forget to bring a cloth back into the sanctuary and clean up where you may have spilled. Our deacons will now dismiss you for the elements. Paul records it this way. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The scriptures record for us that on the night Passover, the night Jesus was betrayed, when they had concluded their meal, they sang a hymn and went out. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and grant you peace now and forevermore. Amen.